Section 37 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in January 2020. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10 section thirty seven selected works by felix dan felix dan was born at hamburg february ninth eighteen thirty four but when he was only six weeks old the family removed to munich his parents friedrich and constanze dan were celebrated actors and members of the royal theatre at munich his childhood youth and early manhood were passed in munich with the exception of one year, 1852-3, spent at the University of Berlin. A somewhat lonely but not unhappy childhood in the fine old house in the Königinstrasse, with its surroundings of parks and pleasant gardens, developed his dreamy, poetic instincts. His first poem, written at the age of fourteen, is the spontaneous lyric outburst of a boy's joy in nature. Dan was educated at the Latin School and the University of Munich. He was but a lad when Homer opened to him a new world. He began to read the Iliad, and scarcely left off night or day until it was finished. The Odyssey followed in the same way, and in two months he had read them both and begun again at the beginning. Poetry had rendered his mind susceptible to learning, and he read, in school and out every classic that fell into his hands history as well as poetry early became a passion to him and the uniformity of his intellectual development made every province of learning his own the teutonic languages old and new anglo-saxon gothic norse etc as well as latin greek french italian spanish and english were easily assimilated at the university, both at Munich and Berlin, he devoted himself to history, philosophy, and jurisprudence. In 1857, he became docent in the Faculty of Law at the University of Munich, and in 1862 was made professor. In the following year he was appointed professor of German law and jurisprudence at Würzburg, and in 1872 he was called to Königsberg to the same chair, and in 1888 to Breslau. He took part in the war of 1870-71 to 71 and was present at the Battle of Sedan. Dan is distinguished as a historian, novelist, poet, and dramatist. His principal historical works are Die Könige der Germanen, The Kings of the Germans, 1861-72, to 72, six volumes, Urgeschichte der germanischen und romanischen Völker, Primitive History of the Germanic and Romance Peoples, 1878. These two rank high among the contributions to German history and ethnology in the 19th century. Among his most prominent works in law is Die Vernunft im Recht, Reason in Law, 1879. As a poet and dramatist, several of his performances have attained eminence. 
In 1857 he published his first collection of poems, and a second collection followed in 1873. Zwölf Balladen, Twelve Ballads, appeared in 1875, and Balladen und Lieder, Ballads and Songs, in 1878. By far his greatest romance is Der Kampf um Rom, The Struggle for Rome, 1876, a work of pre-eminent power and merit. It is a voluminous study, a series of elaborate pictures dealing with the empires of the East and the West in the 6th century. Its scenes are chiefly laid in Ravenna, at the time of that city's great splendor under the Gothic sovereignty, and at Rome. The fierce and beautiful Amalas Vinta, also called often Amalasonta, is a prominent character, and other vivid types are Cassiodorus, Totila, and Mataswinta. Following this novel, among others, appeared in 1878 Kämpfende Herzen, Struggling Hearts, in 1880 Odin's Trost, Odin's Consolation, and in 1882-90 a series of historical novels under the common title Kleine Romane aus der Völkerwanderung, short novels from the wandering of the nations, from the first of which, Felicitas, an appended extract is taken. Among his dramas are Markgraf Rüdiger von Bechelaren, König Roderich, and Deutsche Treue, German Fidelity. The Young Wife, from Felicitas, copyrighted by George S. Gotzberger, 1883, reprinted by permission of George G. Peck. It was a beautiful June evening. The sun, setting in golden radiance, cast its glittering rays from the west, from Findelizia upon the hill of Mercury, and the modest villa crowning it. Only a subdued murmur reached this spot from the highway, along which ever and anon a two-wheeled cart, drawn by Norican oxen, was moving homeward from the western gate of Juvavum, the Porta Vindelica, as were also the country people who had been selling vegetables, hens and doves in the Forum of Hercules during the day just ended. So it was quiet and peaceful on the hill, Beyond the stone wall, which was lower than the height of a man, and which enclosed the garden, nothing was heard, save the rippling of the little rivulet, which, after leaving its marble basin at its source, fed the fountain, and then wound in graceful curves through the carefully kept garden, and finally near the entrance, which was surmounted by Hermes, but destitute of door or grating, passed under a gap in the wall, and flowed down the hill in a stone channel. At the foot of this hill, towards the southeast, in the direction of the city, lay carefully tilled vegetable gardens and orchards, luxuriant green meadows and fields of spelt, a grain brought by the Romans to the land of the barbarians. Behind the villa, on the ascending hillside, towered and rustled a beautiful grove of beeches, from whose depths echoed the metallic notes of the yellow thrush. The scene was so beautiful, so peaceful, only in the west and the southeast could a dark cloud be seen.
from the open gateway a straight path strewn with white sand led through the spacious garden and was bordered with lofty evergreen oaks and clumps of yew trees the latter according to a long prevailing fashion clipped into all sorts of geometrical figures a token of taste or the lack of it the rococo age did not invent but merely borrowed from the gardens of the emperors statues stood at regular distances along the way from the gate to the entrance of the dwelling nymphs a flora a sylvanus a mercury poor specimens of work executed in plaster fat crispus manufactured them by the dozen in his workshop on the square of volcanus at uvavum and sold them cheap times were hard for men and still worse for gods and demigods but these were a free gift crispus was brother to the father of the young master of the house from the garden gate sounded a few hammer strokes echoed back from the stone wall of the enclosure they were light taps for they were cautiously guided by an artist's hand apparently the last finishing touches of a master the man who wielded the hammer now started up he had been kneeling behind the gate beside which piled one above another a dozen unhewn marble slabs announced the dwelling of a stone-cutter thrusting the little hammer into the belts that fastened the leather apron upon the blue tunic he poured from a small flask a few drops of oil on a woolen cloth and carefully rubbed the inscription upon the marble with it until it was as smooth as a mirror then turning his head a little on one side like a bird that wants to examine something closely with an approving nod he read aloud the words on the slab hic habitat felicitas nihil mali intret yes yes here dwells happiness my happiness our happiness so long as my felicitas lives here happy herself and making others happy may misfortune never cross this threshold may every demon of ill be banished by this motto the house has now received a beautiful finish in these words but where is she she must see it and praise me felicitas he called turning towards the house come here wiping the perspiration from his brow he stood erect a pliant youthful figure of middle height not unlike the mercury in the garden modelled by crispus according to the ancient traditions of symmetry dark brown hair cut short curled closely almost like a cap over his uncovered round head a pair of dark eyes shaded by heavy brows laughed merrily out into the world his bare feet and arms were beautifully formed but showed little strength it was only in the right arm that the muscles stood forth prominently the brown leather apron was white with scrapings from the marble he shook off the dust and called again in a louder tone felicitas a white figure framed like a picture between the two pilasters of the entrance appeared on the threshold pushing back the dark yellow curtain suspended from a bronze pole by movable rings a very young girl or was it a young wife yes this child scarcely seventeen must have already become a wife for she was undoubtedly the mother of the infant she pressed to her bosom with her left arm 
no one but a mother holds a child with such an expression in face and attitude the young wife pressed two fingers of her right hand with the palm turned outward warningly to her lips hush she said our child is asleep and now the slender figure not yet wholly matured floated down the four stone steps leading from the threshold to the garden carefully lifting the child a little higher and holding it still more closely with her left arm while her right hand raised her snowy robe to the dainty ankle the faultlessly beautiful oval head was slightly bent forward it was a vision of perfect grace even more youthful more childlike than raphael's madonnas and not humble yet at the same time mystically transfigured like the mother of the christ child there was nothing complicated nothing miraculous naught save the noblest simplicity blended with royal grandeur in felicitas's unconscious innocence and dignity the movements of this hebe who had become a mother were as measured and graceful as a perfect musical harmony a wife yet still a maiden purely human perfectly happy absorbed and satisfied by her love for her young husband and the child at her breast so chaste in colouring was the perfect beauty of her form and face that every profane desire vanished in her presence as though she were a statue she wore no ornaments her light brown hair gleaming with a gold tinge where the sun kissed it was drawn back in natural waves from the beautiful temples revealing the low forehead and was fastened in a loose knot at the nape of the neck a milk-white robe of the finest wool fastened on the left shoulder by an exquisitely shaped but plain silver clasp fell in flowing folds around her figure revealing the neck the upper part of the swelling bosom and the still childish arms which seemed a little too long and reached to the ankles just touching the dainty scarlet leather sandals beneath the breast one end of the robe was drawn through a bronze girdle a hand's breadth wide so she glided noiselessly as a wave down the steps and up to her husband the narrow oval face possessed the marvellous almost bluish white tint peculiar to the daughters of ionia which no southern noonday sun can brown the semicircular eyebrows as regular as if marked by a pair of compasses might have given the countenance a lifeless almost statuesque expression had not under the long low curling lashes the dark brown antelope eyes shone with the most vivid animation as she fixed them on her beloved husband the latter rushed towards her with elastic steps carefully and tenderly taking the sleeping child from her arm he laid it under the shade of a rose-bush in the oval shallow straw-lid of his work-basket one full-blown rose waving in the evening breeze tossed fragrant petals on the little one who smiled in sleep the master of the house throwing his arm around his young wife's almost too slender waist led her to the slab just completed for the threshold of the entrance saying the motto i have kept secret which i have worked so hard to finish is now done read it and know and feel here he tenderly kissed her lips 
you you yourself are the happiness you dwell here translation of mary j Safford. the vengeance of gothelindis from the struggle for rome the slave silently opened a door in the marble walls amalas winter entered and stood in the narrow gallery which ran around the basin just in front low steps led into the magnificent bath from which already warm delicious odors were rising light fell in from above through an octagonal dome of finely cut glass at the entrance was a flight of steps of cedar wood which led up twelve stairs to a springboard round about the marble walls of the gallery as well as of the basin countless friezes hid the mouths of the pipes needed for the waterworks and the hot air silently the bathwoman spread the bathing accessories over the soft cushions and carpets that covered the floor of the gallery and turned toward the door why is it that i feel that i know you asked the princess looking at her thoughtfully how long have you been here since eight days and she took hold of the door how long have you served cassiodorus i have always served the princess gothelindis with a cry of terror amalas winter started up at this name she turned and grasped at the garment of the woman too late she was gone the door fell to amalas winter heard the key drawn out of the lock in vain her eye sought for another place of exit then an immense unnameable fear overcame the queen she felt that she had been terribly deceived that there was hidden a disastrous secret fear nameless fear fell upon her flight flight out of this chamber was her one thought but flight seemed impossible the door from this side was now only a thick marble slab like those at the right and the left not even a pin could penetrate through the seams in despair her eyes travelled around the wall of the gallery only the tritons and dolphins stared back at her at last her gaze rested on the snake wreathed head of the medusa just opposite and she uttered a cry of terror the face of the medusa was pushed aside and the oval space under the snaky hair was filled by a human countenance was it a human countenance trembling she clutched the marble railing and leaning far forward peered over yes those were the features of gothelindis drawn to a grimace and a hell of hatred and scorn flamed in her eyes amalaswinta sank on her knees and hid her face you you here hoarse laughter answered her yes amelong woman i am here and to your ruin this island this house is mine it shall be your grave dolios and all slaves of cassiodorus are mine sold to me a week ago i have lured you hither i have followed you as your shadow through long days and long nights i have borne within me burning hatred at length to taste here full revenge for hours i will enjoy your mortal agony 
will witness miserable moaning terror shake as in fever that proud body and cover that haughty face oh i will drink a sea of revenge amala's winter rose wringing her hands revenge gotelindis wherefore whence this deadly hatred of me ha <laughs> and you ask to be sure decades have passed by and the heart of the happy soon forgets but hatred has a more faithful memory have you forgotten how once upon a time two young girls played beneath the plantains on the meadows of ravenna both were chief among their playmates both were young beautiful and charming the one daughter of a king the other daughter of the balta and the girls had to choose a queen for their games and they chose gothelindis for she was yet more beautiful than you and not as imperious and they chose her once twice in succession but the daughter of the king stood by consumed by wild untamable pride pride and envy and when they chose me for the third time she took up the sharp pointed garden scissors stop oh hush gothelindis and flung it at me and it hit its mark and crying out and bloody i fell to the ground my whole cheek a gaping wound and my eye my eye pierced ah how that hurts even now pardon forgive me gothelindis moaned the prisoner you had forgiven me long ago forgiven i forgive you that you robbed my face of its eye and my life of its beauty shall i forgive that you had got the better of me for life gothelindis was no longer dangerous she mourned in silence the disfigured one fled the eyes of men and years passed then out of spain came to the court of ravenna the noble eutarek the amelar with the dark eye and the tender heart he ill himself took pity on the ill half-blind one and he talked with her kindly and compassionately with the ugly one whom all else avoided oh how that refreshed my thirsting soul and it was decided in order to bury the old hatred between the two houses to wipe away old and recent guilt for the duke of the balta alaric had likewise been executed on secret unproved accusation that the poor maltreated daughter of the balta should become the wife of the noblest of the amalar when you heard that you who had disfigured me you decided to take my lover from me not from jealousy not because you loved him no from pride because you wanted as your own the chief man in the gothic kingdom the next male heir to the crown you decided on that and you achieved it your father could not deny you any wish and eutaric forgot at once his pity for the one-eyed one as soon as the hand of the beautiful daughter of the king beckoned to him for compensation or was it for scorn they gave to me likewise an amelar theodahad the miserable coward gothelindis i swear to you i never imagined that you loved eutaric how could i to be sure how could you think that the ugly one would lift her thoughts so high oh you cursed one 
and if you had loved him and had made him happy, I would have forgiven you everything. But you did not love him, you can love only the scepter. You made him miserable. For years I saw him at your side, bowed down, unloved, frozen to the marrow by your coldness. Sorrow because of your chilling pride soon killed him. You, you have robbed me of my lover and sent him to the grave. Revenge, revenge for him. And the deep vault re-echoed the cry, Revenge, revenge. Help, ho! cried Amalas Winter. She ran in despair along the circle of the gallery, beating her hands against the marble slab. Yes, cry out, no one hears you now but the god of vengeance. Do you think that for months I have curbed in my hatred in vain? How often, how easily could I even in Ravenna have reached you with poniard or poison? But no, I have lured you hither. At the petition of my cousins, at your bed an hour ago, I restrained my uplifted arm from the stroke. Yes, for you shall die slowly, inch by inch. For hours I will watch your mortal agony increase. Terrible one! Oh, what are hours, compared to the decades through which you have tortured me with my disfigurement, with your beauty, with the possession of my lover? What are hours compared to decades? But you shall pay for it. What will you do? cried the tortured one, again and again looking for an escape along the walls. Do? I will drown you, slowly, slowly, in the waterworks of this bath which your friend Cassiodorus built. You do not know the pangs of jealousy and impotent fury I have suffered in this house when you shared the couch with Euteric, and I was among your followers and obliged to serve you. In this bath, you haughty one, I have loosened your sandals and dried the proud limbs. In this bath, you shall die. Gothelindis pressed a button. The floor of the basin of the upper story, the circular metal plate, divided into two semicircles. They disappeared to the right and left in the wall. The prisoner in terror looked from the narrow gallery into the abysmal depth at her feet. Remember my eye, cried Gothelindis, and then of a sudden the sluices at the bottom opened and the waters of the lake rushed in, gurgling and foaming, and rose higher and higher with terrible swiftness. Amalas Winter saw certain death before her. She knew the impossibility of escaping or of softening with prayers her devilish enemy. But her old proud Amelung courage returned. Composedly she awaited her fate. Near her, to the right of the entrance, she saw among the many friezes of Greek mythology a representation of the death of Christ. That refreshed her soul. She knelt down before the marble crucifix, clasped it with both hands and prayed calmly with closed eyes while the waters rose and rose. Now they dashed against the steps of the gallery. "'You are going to pray, are you, murderess?' cried Gothelindis furiously. "'Away from the crucifix!' 
remember the three dukes of a sudden all the dolphins and tritons on the right side of the octagon began to spout streams of hot water white smoke puffed out of the pipes amalas winter sprang up and rushed to the other side of the gallery gothelindis i forgive you kill me but do you likewise forgive my soul and the water rose and rose already it surged over the upper step and pushed slowly on to the floor of the gallery i forgive you never think of uteric and from the left the boiling streams of water hissed toward amala's winter she now fled toward the centre just opposite the head of the medusa the only place where no stream from the pipes could reach her if she mounted the springboard placed here she could for a little yet prolong her life gothelindis seemed to expect this in order to enjoy the prolonged agony the water already foamed on the marble floor of the gallery and moistened the feet of the prisoner quickly she bounded up the brown shimmering steps and leaned against the railing of the bridge hear me gothelindis my last prayer not for myself for my people for our people petros intends to despoil it and theodahat yes i know this realm is the uppermost care of your soul despair it is lost these foolish goths who for centuries preferred the amalar to the balta are sold and betrayed by the house of the amalar belisarius draws near and there is none to warn them you are mistaken fiend they are warned i their queen have warned them hail to my people ruin to its enemies and mercy to my soul and with a quick leap she threw herself from the platform into the waters foaming they closed over her gothelindis stared at the place where her victim had stood she has disappeared she said then she looked down into the water the kerchief of amala's winter was swimming on the surface even in death this woman triumphs over me she said slowly how long lasted the hatred and how short was revenge translated for a library of the world's best literature by r h knorr End of section 37